Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome to episode 11 of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. Uh, we are sponsored by another podcast because that's how we do it here. Uh, that podcast is The Pat Mayo Experience. You search that on iTunes, search that on Stitcher, search that, search that on Google Play. Uh, if you listen to him about the U.S. Open, you probably have uh, a few more shekels than you did last week. So when you get done listening to this show, head on over there and listen to his show. And this week we are joined by Mike Renner from Pro Football Focus to talk about his experience on The Bachelorette, as well as talking about his experience working for PFF. So without further ado, here is uh, the podcast. So we are joined by Mike Renner at PFF Mike on Twitter, fresh off of his appearance on The Bachelorette. Mike, how you doing? How you doing, fella? Are you enjoying your return to the real world? Yeah, I'm doing great. I've been, people like to ask me that, I've been back for quite a while now, and I've been like in the real world for quite a while, but it, it does feel almost like a weight's been lifted knowing that I'm off the show and that there's no real, uh, no real pressure on what they could show that I dumb stuff I did there. That's the that's like the the biggest secret that's kept about reality television that somehow has not ruined the medium, but that it's just it's all happened like months ago, and that the people involved yeah. in the show know. And actually, I didn't even know this, but one of my friends' girlfriends is a giant fan of the show. There there are entire websites and industries of revolving around spoilers for reality shows. That's a thing that exists. Yeah, I've had I found that out the, you know, hard way. <laughs> Being on the show, I was like, oh wow, people are asking me stuff on social media like that I just never would have come in contact with people or DMing me. So it was weird. Is it the first time in your life that you had to sign a non-disclosure agreement? Yeah, no, I think it's the second. So I had to. We signed an NDA at PFF when you start for the uh, grading system. You can't give away our you know secret sauce. That for how we grade players, but that's second time then for the show was the so we definitely we definitely are going to get to football and to PFF, but uh, we do need to get into uh, into your big moment, into your fifteen minutes of national <laughs> television fame. I, what I want to know is how did this come about? Was this your idea? Did one of your buddies tell you to do it? Did you have to send in a video? Did they approach you? What just kind of break down that process for me? So I was actually a fan of the show. I've actually been watching the show for a while, uh, ever since uh, a, a, a friend that used to work at PFS, her name is Diana Sarkisova. She works at SB Nation now. She introduced me to the show with uh, asked me to play in a Bachelor Fantasy League back. This was by 2015. That is a thing. Uh, and people so like, people I, do I love the yeah. reality TV fantasy. They're into it. Yeah. And I was like, I've never watched the show, but sure, let's do it. Um, and then I watched it there, and she's like, you know, you could actually be on the show. Like, and I'm like, uh, probably not. But I, that, I kind of just, after that, uh, I just was a fan of the show. I watched it for a while until last fall. Uh, I'm at uh, Notre Dame, Georgia game, uh, you know, early in the season. And I meet one of my friends 
who I'd known from school. I see him again and talking, and he talked about how, you know, he was uh, either applied for the bachelor. I got through the casting, but then couldn't do it with his job. And I, I just like, I could put you in, he says to me, I could put you in touch with the casting director if you really want. And I'm like, I'm saying, well, I got nothing going on in my, you know, whatever, I'll do it. And then he puts me in touch with the casting director. I make a video with our video guy here in our studio. And like four months later, I'm, I'm in LA coming out the limo. <laughs> Not a not a bad experience. Like I'm sure I'm sure being involved in some of the stuff with television, it's just like it's like unnecessary luxury, like one hundred percent. it was yeah, it was um a lot of the behind the scenes stuff is uh, just nothing can really prepare you for what goes on uh, in that house. It's just that they they even told us that before. So you're you you go out there and you meet with some of the producers even before and they're just like nothing i could tell you exactly what's going to happen in this house and you're still won't be ready for it so so that leads me that leads me to the next question if there are producers that have that much of a heavy hand and what is going to happen kind of how much of what makes it to the actual show is scripted or i guess the right word would probably be supervised by the producers and how much of it is like legitimately spontaneous so that is kind of the thing a lot of it is you are, it is a TV show. You are, you know, on camera. You're not, you, while you are filmed, you know, 24 seven, a lot of, a lot of what you see on TV is you being told, okay, now you're like, now you're being filmed, you know, now you're be ready sort of thing. So uh, uh, most of what makes air is, well, you see the interviews, the two people, multiple people talking. A lot of that is basically, you know, that this is, one of the things that's going to make air, if possible. Yeah, and I mean that makes sense. Like no one, no one wants to watch a bunch of stuff that's not interesting if you encountered it. Yeah, in in exactly. real life. So yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, I guess a, a a question that I think is really interesting from my perspective is, what was your experience with the other contestants and and them thinking, you know, about what you do for a living, working for PFF. Did they kind of just think that it was like really dorky? Was anyone just like, I don't get it at all? That's what's, that's, what's really interesting from probably a lot of the listeners perspective too. The most interesting interactions were actually with, you know, uh, the football players. So Clay Harbor and Colton, Colton obviously didn't really play. So he didn't have much of a take on it, but Clay was kind of, he was, he grilled me a little bit about the grades because, you know, he, was one of the guys that got graded. He, he yeah, he, he wants to know the secret was, sauce. Guys were checking. He said guys were checking their grades after the game and seeing and talking about it actually in the locker rooms. And he was, you know, how he was doing the old. How do you know what I'm supposed to be doing on this play? I run a five yard out. How do you know I was supposed to run a five yard in? That sort of thing. And I just, I gave him, you know, the PFF line. We we know as much as anyone else outside your building knows. You know how well you're doing or what you're supposed to be doing on a play. So. We can, we're not your position coaches. We're never going to be as accurate as your position coaches, but we never claim to be. And so that was our, that was our basically uh, our conversation. And Clay ended up being one of my best friends in the house. So he was, he wasn't too, uh, after I broke it down for him, he wasn't too, uh, you know, conf- confrontational about it or anything. Is that your, is that your only experience you've had with someone that you've graded or have you had other conversations with guys you've graded before? No, I've had I've we've gone to training camps and stuff and talked with players and I have a, a couple buddies who had 
uh, played in the league and still play in the league. And usually face to face, not a lot of guys are super confrontational. The one I can remember that was was that Jaguars camp a few years back. Jared Odrick, uh was pretty not happy about being graded by PFF, and not happy that we were on the sidelines watching their training camp. So he, he was about the only one that really had a fairly negative interaction face to face. He just did he just not think that your grade was proper, or did he just reject the concept that he was a bad football player? <laughs> well, we actually graded him well the year before he got his contract. So I, I mean, we weren't a hater on him until he really fell off the map, and everyone was then a hater on him because no one ended up signing him after the Jaguars cut him. So I mean, I don't know what uh, I think we ended up sort of coming out looking the better in that you know situation, but. His thing was, you don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, the old adage, you don't know if I'm supposed to be grabbing the guard and eating this double team or letting somebody else make the play. You're just great because uh, you're just some guy, you know, behind a computer screen. And while it's true, we are just some guys behind a computer screen. We know, for the most part, what he's supposed to be doing. And by the end of his career, he was not doing those super well. Yeah, and we're we're gonna get a little bit more into the grading process a little bit later, but we'll we'll wrap up the bachelorette discussion first. Uh, so, what had to be a pleasant surprise for you? I'm sure when you applied, you didn't know that you were gonna get to play football. You were gonna get to catch some passes and show off some skills. Run me through the toe tap catch on national television. Tell me about that <laughs> experience. Yeah, that was right at the beginning of the game. So we kind of put on all these pads. We're out there the field. We put on the pads, and they're like, we're not going to actually tackle each other, right? This is just, like, for the for the effect, you know, the pads. And then they're like, okay, Oklahoma drill. <laughs> we're like, oh, shit. <laughs> I did not expect that. And so we're actually first – I get the first kickoff, and they're hitting. Like, they're actually hitting. And I'm like, all right, let's do this. Like, if we're actually hitting, we're actually hitting. And then uh, it was early in the game, actually, the toe-tap catch. I got – Clay threw me a real nice – I was running across the back of the end zone. I point towards the pylon a real nice uh gave me a real nice opportunity to make a play there and you know playmakers make plays so players I make plays man channel channel my antonio brown for that one it was uh it was it pretty impressive show. you you gave all people who work on their laptops for fantasy football a great name like that was that was one large <laughs> step for our industry honestly they did actually show my best play i had a i had like a one-handed interception that they didn't show i don't know why it's pretty crucial play in the game too. I'm still salty about it, obviously, as you can tell. They didn't. They didn't give you enough screen time because they you got off the show too early. It was completely unjustified, man. They should have put the interception on clearly. I know. Oh well. What are you gonna do? Yeah. So what I mean, are? I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask them though to track down that video. Send it to me. Oh, you got. You have to. You have to get all your highlights. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So what are your overall takeaways from the experience? Just what can you what can you tell the viewers that has not been said a hundred times about reality television before? Probably nothing terribly insightful. Besides the fact that if you go out there or if you go on reality TV and you want to literally just be yourself, that's not interesting TV. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, you're gonna not, you're gonna get wrecked if you're just, just an average you. guy. Yeah, people don't. There's a reason people don't just watch you going through your daily lives because that's not what people want to see on TV. So if you go 
go out there similar to what I mean, basically what I did, just go out there and I'm like, I'm just going to be myself and see how that works out. You're probably not going to be super interesting on camera. <laughs> no, probably not. I mean, did you have any interaction with uh, Becca outside of what was shown on TV or like, did you honestly not even get an opportunity? No, yeah, I got some. I mean, they do. You, you do get to talk to her, but it was still, uh, it's still not as much as you might think for having been out there in a few weeks like I was. Sure. All right. Well, now we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about what's really important, obviously, which is professional football. So, what I want to know is, how did you get involved with PFF and kind of become a grader? And what is your primary role with them? Yeah, so I'm now a senior analyst. I'm part of the review team that reviews all our grades and makes sure their quality, like quality controls them, reviews other people's work, uh, you know, less senior analysts. Uh, and uh, most of what I do now, though, is also on the media focus side. I do videos, articles, podcasts, that sort of thing. I just got into it really, I got, I got lucky, basically. I was graduating from Notre Dame. I was had to take I wanted to be I had an accounting degree knew I didn't want to do accounting was going to take actuary exams to be an actuary and just on a whim I saw that PFF was you know taking applicants for an analyst position I didn't even know what that meant and I'm just like I love this website I'm gonna go for it see what see if I can there was like a, a month or so long process where you had to just complete these games of PP, which is, you know, where's everybody on the field, what their role is. Mm -hmm. And they were just going to take the most accurate people. And I was one of the, I think five most accurate people there and ended up getting that part-time. And as I was taking the actuary exams, working at PFF, and I was also waiting tables. And then after that first year, I got full-time and they taught me how to grade. They had like coaches on staff who were, who walked me through all that stuff, six months of, you know, going through the training and I've been grading ever since. Love it. I think that's probably a misconception that a lot of people have about PFF. Probably even a lot of the people who criticize it is they kind of just think that it's, it's guys, right? Like it's just guys watching film mm -hmm. and, and they don't, I think a lot of people believe that the pro football focus grades are subjective, but there's like falsifiable stuff. There's like a legitimate scientific method process to the grading, right? Yeah, we have a 100-page handbook. Everybody, and like I said, there's a senior review team that's fairly small to make sure the quality, like everyone, all those guys are on the same page with what they're looking at. And that every play that we grade looks gets looked at by our senior review team to make sure this is what it should be. And all of it gets gone through all 22 as well. And so, it's, I mean, there is obviously always some subjectivity. There is obviously always some, uh, you know, we even have differences among ourselves. There's obviously plays where you can't know what a guy's doing when, you know, multiple people bust the coverage. But like I said, those are plays are so few and far between. And we're basically, we're not saying a guy's made a good play when he made a bad play, vice versa. We're always at least in the ballpark. We have differences of, you know, what scale of, you know, was it a plus one or was it a plus 1.5? People might differ on that. And people might differ with the method of grading every single play, but, I think at the end of the day, grading every single play is the best way to get at the heart of what we're trying to do, which is evaluating player performance. Yeah, and I, I tend to agree that your guys' capture all method does give more accurate results. 
for example, I know that uh, Matt Harmon, when he does his reception perception, he watches eight games of whoever it is, mm-hmm. and I think that Matt Waldman does like a specific percentage of the players that he watches as well. And I think for offensive skill position players, that does make sense. But when you are when you are provide like providing proprietary data, I think the only real way to make those grades as accurate as possible is to literally provide a grade on every play. And that's like, that's like the only service out there that does it. And I think the biggest misconception that people have about those grades is that it's based on an opinion, right? Like these are, these are not opinions. These are records of what happens. And that's why I consider PFF to be analytics, right? Like PFF is legitimately an analytical approach to the game. And you wrote something that kind of backs that up, but that I think is honestly brilliant. And I haven't heard anyone else make this point, which is that football really is a pretty simple game. There's a lot of moving parts, but every player on every play has their assignment. And it's not that hard to tell if they were successful or if they were unsuccessful. And I kind of wondered if you could expand on that point a little bit. So, yeah, there's, it is a fairly complex game when you look at, you know, 22 moving parts on any, every single, any given play. And there is a lot of film study and a lot of the stuff that goes into the game and preparing these guys. A playbook is not, you know, uh, playbooks are massive. There's a lot of things that these guys have to know. But a lot of the things that they have to know is what to look for pre-snap. It's a lot of these things where, like, based on this front, this coverage, this look that you see from the defense, this guy is lined up in the B gap versus the C gap. What do you do then? But once that play starts, once everything has been declared, you literally are just, okay, I'm down blocking. Okay, I'm, you know, deuce blocking. Okay, I'm, you know, taking this sort of set. And a lot of it does, at the end of the day, come down to one-on-one interaction. I'm the linebacker. I have to take on this right guard. Do I win this block? Do I lose this block? And it's easy to tell then at that point, you know, what, how well a guy did his job because that was fairly simple on any given play. It's just there's a lot that goes into it beforehand, but if it was anything more than simple, if it was if he had to read multiple different things to find out what his job was after the snap, he'd be stuck in the mud. You know, he wouldn't be playing fast, and the NFL is an incredibly fast game where speed is basically everything. So that's why, I mean, it is, at the end of the day, a game that you're in any way familiar with the schemes that are being run at the NFL level, you can deduce assignments fairly easily. So kind of uh, along those lines of grading players out, what is uh, what is something that coaches ask their players to do that you believe is ineffective and could be done away with? Because something we talk about a lot on this podcast is the way that things are structured in the NFL are just horribly inefficient, and it's kind of anti-innovation. So what's an example of something that maybe the average foot person would not know that coaches do that's really inefficient that you think could be changed? Hmm. Um, I, I do think on a whole, a lot of defenses run. I do think simple in the NFL is as effective as, uh, you know, these defense coordinators, Dom Capers really comes to mind, who are basically trying to fool quarterbacks in every single play. A lot of these quarterbacks have grown up, you know, seeing zone blitzes at nauseam at this point, and seeing these, you know, different things being thrown at them. Uh, but a lot of those schemes leave yourself open to, you know, they have weaknesses in them. They have weak points that can be attacked. 
Whereas, you know, the classic Seattle cover three, where they just run it every single snap and it's the same thing. And let's, like I said, let's all your defenders play extremely quickly. It's tough because you have to beat it as a quarterback. You have to be, you know, you have to execute better than the defense is executing, which the defense runs this every single play, every single play, every single week. They're executing it at as high a level as you can run it. So uh, I do think complexities is sort of uh, the defense complexities. These, you know, wild blitzes are probably for the most part, not uh, advised I'll say in today's NFL. That's a, that's a really interesting point you make uh, for a couple reasons, but the main reason being, when people talk about the inefficiencies in the NFL, they almost always focus on the offense. They talk about coaches running too often, or they talk about coaches not going for it on fourth down. And there's just not really a ton of attention on defensive innovation. I think that I think that mm-hmm. when people talk about, you know, what's wrong with the NFL, hardly ever are they making it the fault of the defense. And I think it's kind of hard to pinpoint a reason why that is. I think a large part of it is that most of the stars in the NFL are on offense, and that's more visible. But do you think that that's perhaps... Yeah, I think you also just watch, you just watch the offense, too, when you're watching a play. You don't even be, you know, the film, even when you're watching a TV copy of a game, you don't see what's going on in the secondary, for the most part. You only see what the quarterback's doing. You're probably just watching the ball. And so notice the offense more, and that probably leads to it as well. Well, yeah, it's and it's a reactive thing. Like, you're always watching the offense pre-snap. Maybe you'll see, like, a linebacker move or a cornerback move. But when people think about defense, they always think of it as a reaction to what the offense is doing instead of the defense putting the offense in an uncomfortable position. And I'm wondering if maybe that's one of the kind of unexploited areas of football analytics, if there's all this work to be done with what defenses do uh, that can exploit what offenses do. Do you think that? Do you think that that's true? That there's a lot more innovative work to be done with defenses that is not being done. Yeah, I think there is. It's just so difficult, like you mentioned, uh, because, uh, like you said, it is reactive in nature. A lot of coverages depend, you know, what, what they what they do. You know, how the guys play the coverage depends on the route concepts they're seeing, or how they play the run defense depends on run concept called so it's the you know the what you call the, the offense is the driver the defense is you know the follower so it is tougher in that sense because it takes more than just one there's a lot of variable inputs into you know why you know deciding which you know defense is better than another yeah i think that i think that makes a lot of sense and i think i think nfl teams also are more likely to make bad decisions with defensive players like if you look at some of the really terrible contracts that exist in the NFL a lot of the times it's for cornerbacks that don't fit a scheme or pass rushers that don't fit a scheme or something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast uh, asking players to do things that they're not successful at Uh, most of the time when you would talk about that it would be like a wide receiver asked to play in the wrong position but do you think that that exists with defensive players as well where guys are being asked to play in roles that they're just not suited for and they could be more effective if they did just one thing that they're really good at yeah i mean i think there are differences especially at the corner position in terms of coverages that you're playing and like they are it's a very different being an off corner you know and playing cover four than it is being a press corner in a man scheme like those are just 
incredibly different skill sets and taking one and putting them in another doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily translate. And so I do think there are, you kind of have to defensively, you almost have to, the biggest thing about scheme is scheming to your down like that, even more so than offensively, you have to put these the players that you have into the correct positions or else they're going to be, you know, they're going to be screwed. Your defense is just going to be inefficient, even if you have the best scheme known to mankind. Even if you know that still doesn't uh, won't win you games if your talent doesn't fit that scheme. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. You can't have you know a giant nose tackle running the passer when that's not their role. And there definitely are loads of examples of defensive coaches doing that. Uh, sort of along those same lines, what is what is an idea that you had about football before you started at PFF? Just kind of an entrenched football idea you had that changed as you worked through the grading system and learned more about the game? Oh, I, I think the fact that uh, just – and it actually has even uh, evolved, like I said, as I've been at PFF – I think the fact that run defense mattered for even a linebacker. I, I don't think run defense matters at any position anymore. It doesn't bother me if you have one of the worst run defenses in the NFL, like we saw with the Jaguars, like we saw with the Chargers last year. It literally all comes down to how well you can defend the pass. So that's the biggest thing that's changed for me. I remember even scouting for our first year of um, – doing college and giving into account, you know, dropping guys down for how well they played run defense. And, and now this past year, I was just like, I'm not even going to watch the run snaps. Like I don't even, even want to know what they do against the run. I literally just care about how well they can cover because that's, that's all that really matters in today's NFL. Yeah. The, the variance in a run play is so much lower than it is with it. Like if you mess up in pass coverage, that's kind of guaranteed to be at least a first down, like definitely higher probability of a touchdown. And teams just generally are not that effective running the ball. And teams are, are passing the ball kind of more than ever. So along along those lines, do you see defensive formations changing even more? You know, are, are teams going to start running dime packages as their, as their base formation? Is that something you already see happening? Because I'll, I'll be honest, like as someone who, you know, is really focused on fantasy and daily fantasy, I'm definitely paying less attention to the defensive side of the ball than someone who watches as much football as I do should. Yeah, it's that's the trend, and as we've seen over the past you know, decade in our data, it's the nickel usage goes up every single year, and I don't foresee it ever. I don't foresee with everything in our data and all you know, every all thirty-two teams having our data now, saying that you don't want to run the ball, you don't care about run defense. I think the percentage of nickel was just going to skyrocket. Nickel dime just going to continue. Could you see things going the other way if teams continue to play nickel? Could you see first down running becoming more effective? Like, is is there going to be a team that just decides everyone's going this way, so I'm going to go back the other way? Yeah, I mean, I, you have a handful of teams that I think Tennessee last year, Dallas, uh, even the Jaguars were very run heavy, very heavy formations, putting you in a uh, position where, you know, not uh, you have all these lighter – if you are a team that has, you know, 
focus on pass coverage for your, your pass rushing through your D-line, pass coverage for your linebackers. You have this white box that can't really – or these white defenders that can't really defend the run well. We're just going to line up and pound at you. But as we've seen, those weren't the best offenses in the NFL last year. You know, it's still not the best way to go about you know, passing at a high level. is still far more efficient offensively than anything you can do in the running game. So while there could be a team that, you know, if you have – if you have a Lamar Jackson at quarterback and if someone else, you know, a talented running back and a dominant offensive line, you could feasibly, and that was sort of what the 49ers had when they went to the Super Bowl uh, with Colin Kaepernick. You could feasibly go extremely run heavy, but at the same time, you still need to pair that with a good defense. And it takes a lot of uh, talented players to run the ball. You need a lot to invest a lot in your offensive line to be that good at running the ball to make it worth your while. So yeah, I, I don't, uh, I still think teams will be investing heavily in the past for years to come. I actually, I've been thinking a lot about what could be different in football because I think the game that exists today would be unrecognizable to, you know, people 20 years ago. And I kind of think that that will probably be true 20 years from now, considering that, you know, assuming that football does still exist, given all the concussions and yada, yada, whatever. But I think the final front, not the final frontier, but the next true innovative frontier for teams is going to be a multi-quarterback system, like where they have a running quarterback, like uh, you know you, you have a you have a Lamar Jackson and you have a I don't know a a, jo- a Josh Rosen, you know a, a completely arm strength quarterback. Is that something you can ever see happening? Is there is there a frontier that you see being broached with football that's not being discussed right now? You know, walk me through football in your eyes twenty years from now. I'd be surprised because. I'd be surprised to see quarterbacks just because of what we see right now. There's just not enough quarterback talent to go and it's, around. And it's such, an, it's such an ego thing, too. Like, uh, when I had uh, Josh Hermsmeyer on the show, we talked about, you know, what if Cleveland would have drafted Mayfield and Rosen, right? And and what would have been the consequences of that? And my thing was, I think it's a good allocation of resources, but I think you would destroy the value of one of them, and I just don't think either one of them would have been okay with it. That That, I think, to me... Is the is actually the biggest issue with it because I think running quarterbacks you can find like Trey Roberson could be your running quarterback right? Mm-hmm. Like, like those guys from college you get a lot the guys without the real arm talent but who are you know athletic and shifty like Jarek McKinnon even like he's not a good he was not a good thrower of the football but he could kind of be your option quarterback and that's like that is a completely unexplored thing. Like, I guess the last team that did it was what the, the giants when they would have Warner be the red zone quarterback. I mean, we see that with the wildcat where sure. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't have nearly as much of a throwing threat, but I think Ryan Brown still, you know, the team still didn't absolutely sell all out against the run. They were, you know, there wasn't all 11 guys running it. And people still ran with the wide receivers when they ran routes. So, I, I just don't uh, – it's just so difficult to swap between schemes like that. I could see a team trying it. I, I do think that will be one of the biggest so – I don't want to say innovations, but the biggest changes over the next 10 to 20 years is we, we see so many teams – we've seen so many teams at the NFL level look incredibly similar in terms of their offensive schemes. It's just been – that has been the status quo in the NFL. People are so unwilling to break – too far away from the norms, I think in the next 20 years, 
uh, you know, with all the data that we have, with all the advanced analytics, with people being more willing to new ideas and with new ideas being incredibly successful, as we've seen with, you know, Sean McVay, Doug Peterson, I do think teams will just look different from each other. There will be a lot more, a lot more variation. Maybe you will see teams, a team or two teams go to QBs or do completely run heavy or do single wing offense or triple option, something like that. And other teams go five wide every time and do their thing that they, you know, only run if they have a box advantage, that sort of thing. So I, I do think there will be, that would be the biggest thing in 20 years of, like you said, football still goes exist is that they'll just, teams will be far more willing to try new sorts of offenses like we see at the college level. I hope that the triple option exists in the NFL so desperately. That's like the triple option, the single wing. Like when you, when you watch a Georgia tech game, there's like, there's like nothing greater. I love some, because the, the cool thing <laughs> about football is seeing the different interpretations of it. And you know, the game is kind of getting to this solved level where every team kind of, not every team, but 20 of the teams that use math, they know the right plays to make. They know that passing the ball just gets more yards and generates more points. So uh, I think I think we will we will leave it there. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for talking about your, your uh, 15 minutes of fame. Thanks for talking about football. And uh, where can people find you? What podcast are you on? Go ahead and, go ahead and pimp yourself a little bit here. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at PFF underscore Mike and on the our PFF YouTube channel and the PFF podcast. It's uh, called the PFF NFL Show. So find me on any of those places. Absolutely. Thank you very much for joining.